All right, so the heavens. Why do we call it the heavens and not space? Mm. Mm. Why is it called the Ransom Trilogy and not the Space Trilogy? Well, that's true. It says sometimes space trilogy right on it, which C.S. Lewis would be very angry about. But before we do that, Rachel, will you pray for us? Yeah. (laughs) Welcome to class. (laughs) Lord, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Bless Mike. Bless all of our uh, speech together and way we build each other up in community and glorify you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So why? Why do we call it the heavens and not space? Well, heavens is more theological sounding. There's probably other implications. Space just sounds like not empty nothingness. Well, heavens actually sound poetic. Yeah, space yeah right, right. Poetic. Yeah, this is a more poetic term. It's more theological, that's correct. Right? Which therefore means it's more biblical. If you say talk about space, I think of emptiness. You talk, because space often refers to empty space. Right, empty space. Talk about the heavens, I think, is something beautiful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, my, I, it conjures up a different feeling and yeah, different emotion and vision. Yeah. Because so. he emphasizes a lot the heavens at night. But um, what about the heavens during the day? Does it happen? We don't get to see him here, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't really see either, do we? We don't see stars. We don't see... But uh, it was, uh, yeah, we were driving down to Edenville on Thanksgiving, and it was one of those moments where the mountain was crystal clear, but there was this weird cloud cover, like right in front of it almost. It, it was very strange. It was, uh, so somebody was like, oh, Moses is up there. <laughs> oh, sometimes you get those lenticular swoopy. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's like yeah. Trump's hair on top. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's funny. So yeah, cold, empty. I don't think of space as empty. No? Full of planets and stars and places to explore. That's the universe. No, well, space to Yeah, when you think of space. When I think of... Like, this is always... What was that movie with uh, George Clooney where they got stuck out there? Not Interstellar. Not Interstellar, no. It was the one no. where she's... Sam Bullock's desperately trying to get back. Oh, yeah. Um, gravity. Because, gravity. yeah, Gravity. gravity. It's literally called gravity, I forgot. <laughs> so, like, that's what I think of when I think of space because it's like she's so far from everything. Like, she's out there floating in this darkness and it's like not near. Like, when I, I'm with you, when I think of the heavens, I think it's full of stuff. Because in Genesis it says that, you know, God made the stars and placed them in the heavens. And if you look in the heavens, especially around here, we may not have a lot of blue sky, but we do have a lot of birds. Um, which winged animals flying through the heavens. It's supposed to be a poetic image. Um, I also think of space as endless, where I do not think of the heavens as endless for some reason. Space in my mind goes on forever, for eternity, no end. But the heavens, right? I like the idea of the heavens, the higher heavens, being like the, the attic of a house. So the whole cosmos to me feels like a house when I, when I think of the heavens. But... So why why did C.S. Lewis want to call it the the Ransom Trilogy and not the Space Trilogy? Oh, you never read it? Well, simply because he wanted everyone to stop calling it space. So <laughs> it's the it's a trilogy about this guy named Ransom, and it's a restoration of this idea of the medieval 
paradigm, and, and he did not want people to call the heavens space. So now everyone calls this trilogy the space trilogy, and uh, that's very annoying. <laughs> so going back, um, we'll talk about the medieval man. So the medieval man was a bookish people, correct? Or right. a bookish people. So there's another thing about that originated with Augustine about symbols. Um, so symbols is, is how the medieval man thought about the whole thing. They had a very symbolic worldview. And um, Augustine's treatment of signs and the hierarchical symbolic philosophy of pseudo-Dionysus. Pseudo-Dionysus is another one that the, or the medieval man loved a lot. And so what does it mean to have a symbolic worldview? What does it mean that they were into symbols? Because modern man isn't really into symbols. We're into advertising, which is different. Right? There's a reason my two-year-old knows what Starbucks is. You have a two-year-old? Uh, not now. But my two-year-old, when he was two, when they were all two, they, they could spot a Starbucks because they're looking for the advertising, right? Yeah. But what, what does it mean that they have <laughs> nice, thank you, a symbolic worldview? You think about medieval things. Do they see, like, all material, like, all objects is, like, a symbol of something greater? Yeah, yeah, because this idea of platonic... Um, yeah, forms where the perfect forms exist somewhere in the heavens, and everything here is a shadow of what is the perfect form in heaven. So that everything was a symbol of something else, right? So if you think about the medieval liturgy, you think about the clothes, you think about the incense, you think about the all shape the, of the cathedral, the shape of the cathedral, mm. what they painted mm -hmm. on the walls, what the kind of statues were. They were a very symbolic people, and so when you read something like Dante's Inferno, it's not. Like, everything in there means something. Now, it's not the same as allegory, right? Though they did love allegory. What, what is allegory, specifically? Because symbolic worldview and typology are very different than necessarily... I know what it is. This is hard to define. Yeah. Like, it has to do with um, interpreting an entire story as if it's an analogy for... Another yeah. kind of story? Yeah. Kind yeah, so like in um, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, what, what is the main character's name? Christian. Because he's a Christian, right? And who does he meet along the way? Well, worldly wise man. Well, why? Because he's worldly wise. And then he goes to, you know, Vanity Fair. Why? Because it's a fair full of vanities. <laughs> and you're like, this is not hard to figure out. Yeah. Okay? So, um, Tolkien, who apparently hated allegory. <laughs> uh, so then you get to Gandalf. Is Gandalf an, is a symbol of what? So it's not straight allegory. You don't get to Gandalf and you just have like straight up one-to-one. Right? One. right? Well, he's a... Yeah, how many Jesus characters, type characters are there in Lord of the Rings? My goodness, everybody. Sam, Frodo, Gandalf, Aragorn. Right, right. And so what you have is... Um, uh, Gandalf is a good example because the wizards are supposed to be... And see, Tolkien would be very angry at me for saying things like this. But he's, they're supposed to be the angels. Mm -hmm. They're sent over um, to help direct sort of history in Middle-earth. And, and they, they are undying. They, and they don't seem to have a big beginning. And they're sent by some powerful force um, that they all refer to. So Gandalf is in a sense, you know, like an archangel. 
But another, but then he goes into Moria and he dies and comes back. So he's like Jesus, you know, <laughs> and he's like the resurrected Jesus because then he can defeat things. So this is very much like a medieval symbol. You have somebody like Gandalf, and it represents all kinds of things. So, like the Holy Grail. What does the Holy Grail represent? These are the medieval types that some of us are used to. Well, you drink, drink out of it, and you live forever. Okay, you drink out of it, right? Because it's a cup. <laughs> but is it just a cup? Is that all it is? No, it'll make your face melt off. <laughs> If you drink out of the wrong one, apparently your face melts off. I don't know what it is with Spielberg and people's religious objects making people's faces melt yeah. off. He's such a Jew. It's supposed to be like a super simple, like wooden cup, right? Yeah, right. It's supposed to be. So that's part of what um, in Grail lore is always really funny, because King uh, Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, and, and this is why in the movie it's funny. Everyone thinks they're going to find his cup, and it's going to be this bejeweled. Golden. glorious cup and and in grail lore that's always what happens like they're they go there and there's like a bunch of cups or three cups or a cup and people are always running after the wrong cup now how is that symbolic for something in the spiritual life are we always chasing the wrong cup right paul says we can't you can't you know drink eat, eat at the table of demons and eat at the table of god we're always chasing the wrong kind of cup. So then you get into this grail lore, and it's these weird knights losing their horses, and all this weird stuffs happening to them. There's sword, you know, swords coming out of lakes in the hands of ladies, and all the while, it's really about the fact that we're all chasing the wrong kind of treasure. And and grail lore is very, very weird. And you guys in here ever read much grail lore? You can't actually find the holy grail. It's possible. If you read enough holy grail lore, you will find it. Because it's not an actual thing. <laughs> because it's <laughs> it's Gnostic theology. So what you're searching for is not a thing, it's yeah. an idea. Yeah. That, that's the whole idea behind it. So um, can you guys think of other, you mentioned uh, cathedrals. Can you guys think of other medieval symbols that were very popular? Even that have come down to us? What's that? I just think of knights and like chivalry. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, and so they always carried right the hummel of the, or the pummel of the what do you no, the sword handle is like you turn it upside down and there's always this cross and like mm. through all this medieval literature it, it's like symbolically used as a cross at these key moments in their life they look up and they see the, the handle of their sword and they think of the cross and like for me like I've read a lot of medieval literature so this kind of symbolic thing makes sense to me throwing rice at weddings that's the yeah, there you go. Right, I mean, if you take a lot of the things that we have, they go back like pumpkins. Where do pumpkins come from? Well, they were these, they, they were supposed to scare off evil spirits because they look scary. So this, this scary carved pumpkin is supposed to scare away, and, the, and you go back to um, the rituals that they did in the in Middle Ages, their, their festivals were always full of this kind of stuff, right? Um, and even after Christianity spread, they still had a lot of the pagan ones. Um, they would still have like a festival king and a festival queen, and they would wear these crowns of, of flowers or wheat or whatever. And, and, and so they just loved symbols. Largely, it, it was because they couldn't read. Right. right. And church was in Latin. And church was in Latin. They couldn't speak. Yeah. So you would have like, so this icon, uh, iconography is, is very popular then because you get like a statue of. Um, St. Paul, 
and you can think about the things that St. Paul said that you heard at church, maybe. Or, you know, you get, you get the rosary beads, and they represent things to you. And so it's just this world full of symbols. And C.S. Lewis was all about this. The other thing that they were doing uh, theologically when it came to biblical interpretation is something um, they called it the, um, the moral. Yeah, they would have this way of every, you take a verse in the Bible and you have like different things, you have, different ways you apply it. What they would never do is like historical, grammatical, modern, the thing we do now where we talk about what the words mean, we talk about the historical context. They're, for them, like typology kind of ran away from them a little bit, which is how you get things like Song of Solomon is about Jesus and the church. And, and this is like still a prevalent idea among some biblical interpreters, which I find very creepy. <laughs> Personally, now they may be right, I don't know, but I find it really creepy to talk about Jesus in quite that way. But they, they read this whole allegorical thing in there about Jesus and the church, which for me is just very uh, strange. If you go back and you read the Patristic Fathers and the Medieval Fathers, when they're talking about things in the Bible, it can sometimes get super weird. Um, and they make these like wild connections, which is, I think, where the idea of modern pro prophetic um, interpretation comes from, because think, right? I mean, people look at the newspaper, and then they look at Revelation, and then they make these like wild typological applications. But the reason that this is important to us, this sim symbolism, um, right, and especially somebody like Dante, is because C.S. Lewis was very, very influenced by this. So in his life, all of a sudden, right, people make a big deal out of the fact that he ceased being an apologist and then started writing children's books. And for him, he was actually just doing what he, he was doing apologetics in a new form. He was doing it like a medievalist. Um, there, there is a lot of speculation as to why he suddenly started in a middle age with no children writing stories for children. One of them is that this young woman, Ascom, came to the Socratic Club and handed him his lunch over this debate on naturalism. But that's not actually true. He took the criticisms from that young woman, corrected his book, but he was, run, he was running out of steam for doing straight-up apologetics. So he wanted to write children's books. So if he's going to write children's books, what kind of children, right? He thinks fairy tales best suit what he wants to say. What kind of fairy tales do you think they're going to be? Modern fairy tales or medieval fairy tales? Medieval. Fairy tales. Now, all of you, have you guys all read Narnia? Okay. What are some odd things in Narnia, right? Tolkien thought it was a hot mess <laughs> and thought it was too allegorical. Hello, Gandalf. Anyway, um, so he accused him of, of, of creating this just disaster of a book. Why? Right? Like, let's just talk about uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. What are some things that appear in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that seem very strange? It's We're all used to it now, but think about oh, it. Oh, are you talking just about very like broad. the street lamp in the middle? Oh, street lamp? Yeah, okay, street lamp. So okay. some of the creatures are like yeah, you half one thing, half another, yeah, like the fawn. Yeah, so, yeah, because you have creatures, you have some creature, yeah, yeah, you have some from medieval, uh, yeah, literal medieval fictional characters mixed in with, with like centaurs. Yes. <laughs> yes, and it's really funny because um, even this is, it, so uh, there's um, a book that I read about the Desert Fathers, they call them. Okay, so these monks were like sick of being persecuted, so they're like, we're just going to go live in the middle of nowhere. 
So they go out there and they live. And this guy is writing this book in the third or fourth century, and he's like, listen, there's been a lot of nonsense written about these guys. And it's time for me to set the story straight. Okay, so then he proceeds to tell the story about this desert father who went out into the desert and was found by a tribe of fawns. <laughs> and proceeds from there to tell a quite fanciful story. And I'm really glad that he's setting the story straight. But it seemed to me always when I'm reading it that the guy wandered into Narnia somehow. Because everything that he describes of this desert father experience sounds just like Narnia. Um, and it was this hodgepodge of both Greek symbols and, and, and you know, medieval symbols and all this stuff. So people find this to be very, very weird. Because he took things from everywhere and slapped them together. Right, and then you got a witch. Yeah, you got a witch. But then you have like a sacrificial table. <laughs> yeah. You got the stone table. Yeah. And then what's the weirdest one of all? You guys want to take a guess? What's the weirdest person? The, who's the weirdest person to show up in the whole story? Beavers. No, not the talking beavers. This is the one that threw this through talking like nobody's business. Uh, what is Father Christmas doing in Narnia? He just suddenly comes. Yeah. And it's, is it similar because he needed bells to kind of... Awesome. <laughs> he's in his red jolly suit. And it's not Santa Claus. Why do you think it's Father Christmas and not Santa Claus? Well, isn't... Uh, Santa was... Santa, as we know Santa, had that even been made into iconography by Coca-Cola yet? It had in America. Right. Mm -hmm. So Lewis didn't even know about... Yeah, it was not something that showed up on his radar. Yeah. So, um, this is probably the weirdest one. Now, if you stop and you think about it, what color do you associate with Father Christmas? Red. Red, okay. Now, if, and then if you, read, if you read the story carefully, he's not. He's, not. he's dressed as a woodland like elf. elf. Browns and greens. Is he? I thought in the book they, re, they describe him as having red colors on. Mm -hmm. I don't know, i got to be careful. She's, she's directed a stage production. <laughs> <laughs> So I know they talk about it like red cheeks, maybe is what it is. But then there's like a red bird that they follow for a time, and, yes. and like red berries. There's all this red. That, this is another thing that people are like, why is there all this weird references to this red color? Okay, so this was a, it's always been a real mystery as to what was going on. Why are there seven books? Is it the seven deadly sins? <laughs> is it the virtues? What is going on? Okay, so there's a man named Michael Ward, who's a Catholic priest. And he uh, works at Oxford, and he was doing his uh, doctrinal dissertation. And he read, he sat down one, at one point and read like everything that Lewis had written in like a couple of weeks, because he was wow. just like try, trying. You've been working on it all year. Yeah, you've been working on it all year. Well, this is Michael Ward, so he 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 can do that. I've met the guy. I don't think he does much else besides read. Um, so he he finally has this epiphany. Okay, and he goes and he gets this book off of his shelf about the planets, this poem that C.S. Lewis wrote very early on about the planets. And he starts reading that. And as he's reading that, he discovers the secret to Narnia. And the secret to Narnia is that each book represents one of the seven spheres of heaven. So in each book, okay, you travel to under the influence of that particular planet. Okay, and, and this is just me introducing this idea. We're going to get much further into this because I think we have to go back and explain why would Lewis, why would he do this? So right? there's a lot of similarity to the uh, 
is a space trilogy then. Just like a space trilogy, but it's like even more hardcore. Okay, and I don't think it does not appear that this is what he meant when he started. But as he got going, this is what he ended up doing. He needed a device, and he's a medievalist. And so he he when he wrote a book, he 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 and Tolkien talked a lot about what they call atmosphere. Okay, so you go onto a planet and, and like the like you know really good movies and really good books, you get into them, and they just have this atmosphere, right? Like uh, No Country for Old Men. It's, I was just recently thinking about this one. Rather, I was going to let my boys watch it. But I was like, the atmosphere of that movie is unbelievable. Interstellar, I was just talking to the ladies oh, yeah. about that one. I love the atmosphere in Interstellar. Um, can you guys think of other artistic things that have really good atmosphere? We just watched Dune recently. That one. Okay, yeah, is the atmosphere in Dune pretty good? Yeah. Okay. I've heard. A good Hans Zimmer bois. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Can you guys, anything else? Anything else you guys like? That has Amelie. A lot? Amelie, yes, that has excellent atmosphere. Nice. So this is what C.S. Lewis wanted in his stories. That's why when you read a book like um, uh, That Hideous Strength, I think the atmosphere in That Hideous Strength is excellent. So he was all about atmosphere. He was also all about I, this idea of restoring the medieval paradigm. So he, he secretly wrote into his books... Uh, um, the seven heavens and, and, and in each book you go there and it's, you're influenced by a different planet and this one is Jupiter um, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe is Jupiter um, and, and he's the um, Jove is what we call him by Jove jovial, happy right? and so you go and you read Narnia and it has this jovial atmosphere it has the, the red colors it has, this is why he used the symbols he did in that book because he was trying to compile this atmosphere of Jupiter. Does this make sense? This is this why we get Orson his boy is like this weird like why is this one in the Yes, what is going on there? And then and that one is a little uh, yeah, that one was a little harder to figure out, but it's the lunar book. So the moon. There's madness, they're under the they 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 ride at night a lot. There's like all this weird stuff in there. And then Mars is um, What's the second one? Though? Prince Caspian. Prince Caspian, the Marshall book, right? There's all this war. So each book has this has this different atmosphere. Now, Michael Ward has now since gone to be extraordinarily famous, and it's really funny because everywhere he goes, this is the only thing people want him to talk about. Um, so I've seen, I've watched online like his his lectures about it, and then Anne and I got to go to an essay a few years ago and see him talk, and it was the same, it's like the same talks. He goes and he gives the same talks. Mm-hmm. It's really funny. Why reinvent the wheel? Yeah, yeah, exactly. If they're going to pay you to talk about it, talk about it, right? <laughs> what was weird about the street lamp? Why is that there? Well, it's just in a forest. It's just, well, yeah. That's what I remember well, it's from a, the book as a kid. It's just there. And it's like, like in a medieval like, period. There's right? a lit so, street yeah. lamp. It's, it's lit in the middle a lit of a forest. street lamp in the middle of a yeah. uh, snowy forest. I guess forest. that was all, it's all fantasy, so... Right. Well, see, and that's anything in there you want. Right, and that and that's how a lot of people have always thought. Well, Lewis was just slapping everything that he loved into this book, and it's like, but if you know anything about C.S. Lewis, he would not. He's a medievalist. He would not sit down and write a book where there's anything that's meaningless. Everything has meaning, um, and, and and not allegorical, straight up. There's and and that's what Tolkien didn't understand what was really going on with these books. And so he called it allegory, which was like an insult to his friend. But 
there's much, much, much going, much more going on than it appears, right? Like the White Witch represents something much deeper than she first appears because as the book goes on, it's sort of her influence over other characters as the book goes. It's very strange. She, she makes a reappearance. So she is kind of like the Satan character and you go all the way, you know, you get to Diggory going to Narnia when it's first created and it turns out she really is like Satan. They're messing up God's creation. It sounds creation. like it is basically a straight allegory. Sometimes. Sometimes. Maybe, but, maybe not yeah, completely. But. Yeah, but it like takes you're, a you're while. You're in good company. You're with Tolkien. Yeah, yeah you're with Tolkien. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I mean, I, I personally love allegory, but I I kind of understand how it can be overused. Yeah, so. yeah totally. Yeah, it can, it, it can be used, um, overused. So, do you guys have a Bible? Oh my gosh. I'm not Psalm 19, verse 1 and 2. Do you want it read? Sure. Okay. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Okay. So, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The heavens are constantly speaking. So when you go out and you look up at the heavens, are, there's, there's a noise there. Now, the argument, you know, that... Well, Lewis, but the verse 3 says oh. they speak without a sound or word. Yes. Their so, voice is never heard. Oh, so why? This is what medieval man tried to figure out, right? They call it the music of the stars. And the argument goes, right, this is how they, because they're reconcilers, right? They have to reconcile everything. So there is a noise that you cannot hear. Do you know why? Because you, so useless. Yeah, you've never not heard it. Mm-hmm. So just like a fish does not know it's wet. Or uh, there's a famous story about a guy who grew up next to the Niagara Falls and didn't, had never, had, did not know that Niagara Falls made a sound because he'd grown up there. And it's like he was That's so used to Mike. Story. It's a story, yeah. The boy who lived by the Niagara Falls. <laughs> it wasn't until he went away to war and came back that he realized how noisy it was. <laughs> and, and this is C.S. Lewis's, what he said, Medieval Man Figured Out, is that there is a noise coming, right? It's declaring something to us, but we can't hear it. And so learning to hear it is part of what he wants us to do, he, right? Uh, like Chesterton was the same way. He said there's no lack of wonders. There's only a lack of wonder. Um, and so regaining the wonder... That, that like God has, like a little child, with seeing the sun come up again and again and again and again. That's declaring something to us. So all around us is the glory of God in nature making noise that we, we don't really hear because we've never not heard it. So it's, you have to stop and think about it. And it is true. Like, have you guys ever had noises like this? Like, I don't, there's a gun range near my house, and I stopped hearing it years ago. I had to literally stop and think and try to hear it. But it just goes on in the background constantly. You hear rifle fire, rifle fire. And when I, you know, I grew up in a cop's house, so I always respond. When I was a kid, I'd hear gunfire and I'd be like, oh, I hear that. There's somebody shot a 22 down the street. Now I'm like, whatever. It's like all the people in Des Moines or SeaTac uh, and Burien that live in the flight path. Yep. Like 9-11, they couldn't sleep. Yeah, because no the sound was gone, right? The sound was gone. Oh. Now, what are some... Um, some sounds, perhaps, some glories that are going on around you all the time that you have to stop and think about. I think, like today, the wind and the trees make noise. Okay, I think okay. It's, I rather like the sound of the 
Now here, let's get let's get typological. Wind in the trees. Is there a typological symbolism there? Think about it like a medieval person. When you hear that wind in the trees, does it make you think of anything from the Bible? Or think of anything about God? Maybe the spirit moving through? Boom! See, there you go. And this is why Jesus spoke in this kind of language. Because he wanted to associate um, deep spiritual truths, right? Truth with things that you see every t- all the time. That's why he, he calls himself the bread of life. Because everybody eats bread. For the most part. Uh, what are some other noises that or glories that you have not really heard until you suddenly are struck by them. You talking about the sun a moment ago? The sun. <laughs> I think we appreciate the sun more than. That's <laughs> always. We do, I guess we don't always see it, so we do. Have like yeah. Okay, so how are you defining noise? Because if the sun it has a noise, I haven't heard it yet. <laughs> well, I mean, you know. I'm just asking. Yeah. So if you think about it, right? If, I'm not talking about an actual physical. I'm talking about the idea that it's declaring something to us, right? The universe is, is singing at the glory of God all the time. It's like the angels in heaven saying, holy, 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 all the time. The universe is constantly singing the glory of God. And we don't often hear it because we're so, we've never not heard it. And so when you actually stop and think about it, just the way in real life, you don't really notice a noise until you stop and think about it, right? Like, it's amazing how much noise my kids can make now that I don't, and I function. And people come to my house and they're just, you can see they're discombobulated. Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah, so anyway, we're going down the street. And I just keep talking. I just keep acting like nothing's going on. So there are noises, quote unquote. So you got to think symbolically now, typologically. So you hear the wind in the trees. And it actually, if you, if you stop and think about it, it, you think of a thing that Jesus actually said. The spirit is like the wind in the trees. Right? Because I, I sit in my front window and I... I can see the trees across the street, and when the wind goes, I can't hear it because I'm in my house, but you see it. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's how you know the spirit is there, because people are animated. They're alive. And, and I, like to, I, I like to remind myself of that every time I see this particular set of trees, because it reminds me of the work of the spirit. This is a good example. Yeah. So suddenly, right, the sun is always shining upon us in one sense, because, right, no matter whether there's clouds or not, there's always sunshine. But what happens when the clouds part and the sun comes out? I, I'm with you. I, I think, pe- right? You just walk outside. <laughs> Do you think people, and, and this is very interesting, do you think the people in San Diego ever experience the sun the way people from Seattle do? Mm-hmm. Never. No. And there's a different experience they have where it never goes away. And so they don't, I mean, they're like, yeah, it's just there all the time. Here, it like comes out for 20 minutes and everybody, like, everyone is suddenly a human being again. <laughs> or like the people that chase eclipses. Yeah. Hmm. Or, the, or the Northern Lights. The Northern Lights, that's a good example. Yeah, my, my wife only just, we were talking because you could see Northern Lights recently from here. Yeah. And it happens occasionally, because I've seen it from Renton when I was a kid. But you can't actually see it down this far south. And I remember when I was a kid, I had no idea what it was. And I was just outside smoking. <laughs> and I look up in the sky and I was like the earth, I thought the world was ending because I'd never heard of such a thing and I was like the, the sky's blowing up it's like Independence Day that movie anyway um, but it's glorious do you think people who have northern lights all the time right what are they mm-hmm. do they really think about it probably no, no just in the background no and imagine those people who live in 
darkness half the year and sunshine, right? It's light for 24 hours a day, half the year. It's dark 24 hours a day, half the year. That would get old fast, right? So all these experiences that we have, we get very used to things. We get very comfortable with things. And what we do is we take things for granted. And so one of the things C.S. Lewis and Tolkien were all about is they wanted art um, that kind of shook the tree a little bit and made you think about things differently. So Tolkien said that if, you, if you're not fascinated by the things in your backyard, it's no good going to the moon because you'll be bored, right? If you can't walk out your back door and be fascinated by the things and delight in the things right in your own backyard, don't go to the moon because it's wasted on you. And I think that this is commonly true of most people, okay? So this is all getting into Lewis's view, partially his view on what they call natural revelation. You guys know the difference between natural revelation and special revelation? Special revelation is basically God's word, right? Yeah, God's word. Yeah, the Westminster Confession. I don't have my Bible with me. I don't think. Yeah, the Westminster Confession puts it really well. So there, there is um, God reveals himself in nature. No man can say that there's not a God. He's revealed to everyone all the time. But there is this special revelation in which he declares his word to man. And we've written it down for particular purposes. So the, the extent, how far can you go with natural revelation is like a debate in theology constantly. Modern man, is, especially modern reformed people, are not into natural revelation. They, they find it very scary in doctrine. C.S. Lewis had a very interesting view of it. And it's one of, I, I would say, his, his only real distinct contributions to theology proper. Um, in the sense that, he, he, had, he wanted us to expand our imaginations to embrace all kinds of natural revelation. One of them is this. He wanted you to be fascinated, right? He wanted you to think that you could find a magical world in a wardrobe. He wanted you to think that you could be walking around in a park and suddenly find yourself in a magical land full of dryads and naiads. Uh, he was, he used to... I believe that. You believe that? No, if I did, you'd think I was nuts. So. <laughs> you do believe that or don't believe that? I'm just saying, if we really did that, find, if somebody said, walk into the park and then they enter this magical, we would think they were a little off. We would think they were a little off, yeah. wouldn't yes, we? Definitely. Yeah. So, and so we can only believe it in a book, you know, through a story. We can't actually. True, but I think you can in this regard. Like, if you stop, like, Indy Wilson has taken this idea and is now making, like, a nature video series out of it. <laughs> because if you stop and think about like uh, mole rats, you know what a mole rat is? It's this hairless rat that, blind. yeah, blind. That when they're pregnant, you can actually see them. The mole, like the mole rat babies, walking around inside of it. Oh, they walk, do they? Oh yeah, they, they, you see them like squirming around in there. Oh, squirming, walking, <laughs> moving. Oh, Come on, Laura, you're so their literal. Their <laughs> moving their legs. You have to keep Noel. Well, it's I can. Important that we are articulate. Okay. <laughs> So this whole idea that you, you, you can actually, right, and if you, if, you want to believe, if you want to really believe this, take a kid to a park. Because you take a kid to a park like the one across the street, I know that homeless people live there, I know that we're in the city, we have not left anywhere. We're just in the same boring place we were 10 minutes ago. But to a child, it takes them not long, and they're in this whole other magical world. And, and this is an idea that Lewis and Tolkien wanted us to believe. And, and they called it fairyland, right? You ever read, uh, I'm sure you have, uh, 
Chesterton's Orthodoxy. Orthodoxy yeah. Chapter 4. Chapter 4. It's awesome. <laughs> and, and this is what they wanted. They wanted a childlike faith. They wanted us to be amazed by what God had done right here. They wanted us to be able to commune with God all the time. Because that's what God is trying to do with us through nature. Again, uh, it's not a lack of wonders. It's a lack of wonder. I think everyone saw that when William Shatner went to space and then came yeah. back and was trying to express it to Jeff who'd already been there and could go back any time and Jeff just wanted to spray his champagne bottle. Yeah, I saw that. Put the champagne bottle down, yeah. Jeff. And <laughs> William Shatner's like, I just felt the blackness of space was like death and there's just this, that, that thin blue line protecting this orb. Like, he's, try, he's <laughs> trying to be poetic. At the end of his life, having yeah. just experienced yeah. space. Space. Yeah. And yeah, that was a beautiful thing. Shatner trying to wax eloquent. Yeah. Yeah. But he really had experienced something profound. Right. Yes. You and you, got, you yeah. could get that sense. Yeah. And, and this is where Lewis and Tolkien got this idea from Chesterton. They were heavily influenced by him to, to have this sense of wonder all the time. Right. Yeah. Um, like, it's like that weird fish that lives at the bottom of the ocean has that light bulb that comes on. <laughs> to the attract other things to right? it. And we only recently found it. And, like, so this is Indy Wilson's argument. Like, God has been delighting in that ugly fish down there in the deep where no one else could see it but him for thousands and thousands of years. And every one of them that was born into this world, God delighted in. And he made it for himself. He, he, he's filled this world full of treasures. And are, and are we able to go out and see them as treasures? Or is it boring? Right? If, it's not a boring world that we live in, so why are we always so bored? <laughs> and and, I, and this, this is a very big idea that we're going to continue to talk about. So next week, we're going we're to keep going with C.S. Lewis's view of natural revelation, but we're going to bring fairy tales into it. So you take fairy tales and you take nature and you put them together, and this is C.S. Lewis's view of natural revelation, which we'll, I'll explain next week. Okay? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.